Rusty Quill presents. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Sin Carriers, a West Side fairy tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Surviving the unexpected Pinkerton ambush, our travelers arrived in a strange desert town, seemingly more haunted than inhabited. Responding to an invitation by the supposed lord of this place, a man named Belial, Tolliver hired Sue's additional services as a personal guard to his daughter, Moira. Meanwhile, the other travelers spread out through the town on their own errands. Some banal, some precautionary, and some sinister in intent. Night fell on a gathering of persons demonic and monstrous in nature at Belial's home, which itself seemed a living thing, half dream and shadow. The rest amazed of crystal confusion. Vasily and Vicky met up here with Moira, who was acting oddly comfortable amongst a throng of inhuman beasts. They tried to figure out some way to get her and themselves out of danger, but failed to come up with something ahead of the start of the festivities. With a word from Belial, madness ensued, and the crowd erupted into a night of blood-soaked decadence. In town, Colt sneaked through the shadows to keep out of the chaos around him. He found the town's uglier secrets shuttered up in what turned out to be the mayor's office. Not one who turned out an opportunity, Colt stole everything he could before dodging the monstrosities lurking in the corridors and setting the place afire. In the dream of her past, Suleme crawled from her early grave and sought vengeance on the man who'd murdered her clan. She succeeded to a degree before she was forced to flee, though she would have a lifetime to find the rest of them. Back in Belial's mansion, Vicky and Vasily are threatened by the beautiful, if slightly rotten, Cornelia. Vasily, panicked by the situation around him, opts for violence, but is held back by Vicky, who uses his salesman's charm to turn a friend into an enemy. A well-made deal, it seems, as her presence was far more effective at deterring the horrors nearby. Moira, meanwhile, began to emerge from the fugue state she'd entered inside Belial's mansion. Recovered, she saw through the mirage of Belial's truly simple home and worked to impede the ritual he was trying to perform on her. Though she wasn't strong enough to push him away, help soon arrived in the form of Sue, descending from the shattered peak of Belial's domain like a great dark bird. After a quick, brutal fight, Belial was beaten and forced to retreat, having lost an eye for his efforts. Licking his wounds, he found the must trying to rob him of the last of the three woodpiles delivered to his domain. Two have already been used, one of which fully hatched, and the must is nearly obliterated, making a play for the last. 
As Belial descended into the caves beneath the city to heal, the must saw Tolliver Loeb hatch from the last woodpile. Soon enough, the train of Orc Eastward and the must was left to slowly knit himself back together in the company of the rider. On this episode of Sin Carriers, Sue wakes up the morning after the events of the ball, tired but none the worse for wear. Her debt paid to Moira, she leaves, not knowing somebody else aboard the train is waiting to collect. Mr. Vaught takes stock of the increasing damage to the train and tells the security crew to be ready to stop again shortly. Tolliver awakes a different man than the one he was before departing, but can't quite hold himself together. Wickless loses face after terribly misjudging a situation, and Gatto teaches a new imago just where he stands in the pecking order. What surprises await us in this, the final episode of the Grand Ball Arc of Sin Carriers. Is Moira safe now from the siren song fugue that's been haunting her, or is she more in danger now than ever? Having faced her past, will Sue begin to walk down a less bloody path in life, or is she destined to spend all her days in violence? You may find the answers to these questions and more on this, the 12th episode of Sin Carriers, Morning. Afternoon sunlight woke Sue, shining onto her face through the slatted windows of Moira's cabin. She'd barely had the energy to stand after the whole thing at Belial's mansion and barely remembered getting back to the train. That wasn't an unfamiliar feeling for Sue, losing time. And as usual, it was accompanied by a full-born stiffness in her every joint and muscle. She sat up in Moira's bed, pulling the covers away to get a look at her own naked body and finding only the same old familiar scars. A few new cuts and scrapes, for sure, and a particularly nasty bruise on her shoulder she couldn't well account for, but nothing serious. On occasion, her spells would see her waking to still bleeding holes and badly sutured gashes in her limbs. One time, she'd barely nearly lost an eye. But all was well that ended well. For all your bluster, you really weren't much to handle, she said, rolling her knife open in her hand and inspecting her reflection in the blade. Nothing there either, or at least nothing obvious for what she could see. To her right, Moira mumbled and rolled fitfully onto her back. Sue allowed herself a peek at the young woman's body under the covers, nodded, and tried to rustle her usual clothes out of the pile on the floor. All that remained of her fine red dress were shapely candy cane twists of silk. She'd worn the thing to ribbons fighting and running in it. It was a shame. She would have liked to wear it again. The Lord only knew when such an occasion might ever arise. Sue gave the limp, sweaty fabric a disappointed kick and fetched her hat off the corner of Moira's mirror. Where are you going? The young woman asked. Sue about jumped out of her skin. When she turned, Moira was sitting against the wall, covers spread down from her neck like she'd been buried in a dune of silk and cotton. The effect put Sue off some. Back of the train, Sue said. Job of the use done and paid for. I'm not okay, and I want you here with me, Moira said. She spoke like she was still asleep, looked like she was still asleep, after a fashion Her lidded irises glowed darkly purple in the shade afforded by the furthest corner of the sleeping cubby. Sue steadied herself as the train rumbled over some unevenness. Mr. Vaught dropped something in the hallway and cursed. I appreciate that, 
Sue said. Moira licked her lips, eyes bobbing up and down along with the motion of the train, dancing over Sue's body in a hungry, possessive way Sue didn't appreciate. But I'm going to leave. Clouds covered the sun outside for a long moment and Moira's eyes glowed in the dark, brightly enough almost to cast light onto her cheeks. Then the moment passed and it was just Moira again, looking confused. She pulled the sheets tighter. Was I talking to you just now? Moira asked. Sue gave the woman a sideways look, sidling a touch closer to the door. Eventually, she nodded. Pain and fear colored Moira's expression. She looked at the bedspread and then at Sue. I could feel myself talking, but I couldn't hear what I was saying. What did I say? Nothing bad, Sue replied, cracking the door and checking the hallway. Nothing but a wet spot by the Russian's room and the smell of tea. She shut the door and gave Moira a concerned look. You remember saying you weren't okay. What do you mean by that? I don't know, Moira said in a soft voice. She seemed to think of something. Don't go in amongst the wood. She looked into Sue's eyes. As Stevedore told me when we were unloading his hold, I know he meant that wood that we're carrying, but I don't know what he meant. She shivered and shrank down in her sheets. I think it's making me sick. Well, I'll get that Mr. Tavares you're so fond of, Sue said. She'd better made the Russian's acquaintance the night before, when he'd helped carry Sue to the train. He'd been flustered and red-faced, complaining about some disgusting woman and swearing violence against her if the typewriter boy was harmed in any way. Sue, Moira said, smoothing out the covers where the other woman had slept. I appreciate what you did for me yesterday. All right, then, Sue replied. She'd have left it at that, but the other woman's eyes arrested her. A subtle goldness seemed to bob up and down just behind the natural blue of her irises. It should have been a cold color, but it burned hot. It was hunger, beyond lust or thirst for meat, something Moira was only just barely aware of but must have felt strongly herself. Sue took a breath and ran a thumb along the razor where she'd hidden it. Can I tell you something honestly? She asked. Moira nodded. The light seemed to grow. You and I don't know each other. I slept here. I did some work for you, but that's it. We're strangers, carrying our own burdens, you see. And I think maybe you see me helping you carry yours as a friend, but I don't see it that way. I just work here, yeah. And we're only as good to each other as far as I get what I need. Same goes for the rest of them, I'm sure, even if they don't say it your wallet at the end of the day and they'll do what they need to open you up Moira looked hurt which Sue was fine with leading a bright eyed young thing like this on was always more pain than it was worth I don't mean anything to you Moira asked there was a novel curiosity in those words nobody had ever told Moira that in such a clear way she smiled to herself which put Sue off some. 
Moira gave her a look, that discolored indigo shining in her eyes. But what did it take for you to... to give yourself to me? To change how you feel about me? Holistically? I don't know what that word means. Sue said, rolling on to her toes. She couldn't shake the feeling like she was about to get into a fight. Not a words fight, either, but the bloody kind. Completely. In Toda, Moira explained. Sue rolled her eyes and the younger woman whispered a single word that seemed to reverberate in Sue's bones. Wait. Wait. Sue froze, hand over the door latch. Her fingers shook, bent, and then she slid the door open, stepping into the hall before daring to look back at Moira again. She felt beads of sweat trickling down her forehead, like she'd just accomplished some great effort. She's, she's plenty fine to look at. Sue shook serious cobwebs out of the space behind her eyes, tucking her hand into one of her hidden spaces to grab her knife. It was a force of habit, but she'd somehow chosen the wrong pocket and grabbed onto the playing cards the Doomsayer had given her. Her mind cleared and she let loose a breath she didn't realize she'd been holding. If not you, it's somebody else. Moira muttered. Her eyes were radiant now, glittering like sunlight off the ocean. You're a serious person, Superman. Moira's voice was wrong. What did you call me? But you're small. An insignificant raptor of the forest of predators... Nothing to try for, but nothing to worry about. Nobody asks your permission before venturing into the woods. Moira's expression changed. She spoke in her usual voice, but with a desperate affectation. I need them to take me seriously. I want them. I need them to... 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 Sue stepped back into the hallway, ready to fly. The steady indigo flared up again. I need them to love me. For me. And for their own reasons. She nodded at the pool of soft, purple-black shadows swimming in her lap. And I need them to show me their love. Their respect. She whispered. That's what I want. Sue felt airy. Unseen constrictions let up, and her arm moved without thinking, slamming Moira's door shut. Then she jogged off down the hall. It wasn't until she was standing in the sunshine on the next platform that she managed to catch her breath. She stared at the cards the doomsayer had given her, squinting and trying to remember the dreams in Belial's mansion. No doubt the dream cards were from the same game. She tried to remember the features of the woody, twisted thing that had given them to her all those years ago could only see the wizened face of the train station doomsayer. That ancient woman had spun the cards like the robes of her clansmen when they twirled in worship. Connection was undeniable. With that thought, the card depicting a blue crescent moon began to smoke in her hand. Its face blackened first, and then caught fire. Sue watched the flames roll closer and closer to her fingers, and then gave what remained to the wind before it could burn her. Mad currents of wind curved it midair and smacked it into the side of the last woodpile. Carbon flaked and dissipated. Some, 
But not all, she thought, of the ash disappeared over top the pile. What remained would be impossible to see against the blackness now smothering the wood. It spread in a way that reminded Sue of clouds covering the ocean, or whispers in a distant room growing into a deafening noise. She walked carefully around the pile, and by the time she stood beside the opposite door, the blackness had dissipated completely. Only the golden lumber remained. But beneath that, not going amongst the wood. She thought, walking into the brake vault car and trying to ignore the feeling of eyes on the back of her neck. Uh, hey there, folks. If you're like me, then you love a scary story. But why settle for bargain bin, big box store blandness when you can get piping hot homemade horror delivered directly to your home? Support the West Side Fairy Tales today on Patreon, and you can get episodes like this one ad-free, as well as access to merch, the ebooks, and other amazing deals. But most importantly, you'll help bring weird, original content like Sin Carriers to life. If you want more bizarre, creepy, and horrifying indie fiction, then go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today! Gato said, flipping the large knife between the tip of its blade and the butt of its grip. He kept the thing balanced at all times on the very tip of his long finger, clearly enjoying the way Vought flinched with every rotation. The little man set his jaw and would have slapped his clipboard against Gato's leg if he weren't deathly afraid of the man. Gato wouldn't hurt him, Vought knew, but only because Vought could never be a threat to Gato. He treated everything that wasn't immediately dangerous as a form of amusement and, in this, was very much the model of his namesake. It wasn't the infantilization and derision he usually experienced from tall people. In fact, it was nearly the opposite in its way. Gato's unnerving mockery was egalitarian. In any case, it made Vought's day more difficult than it needed to be. He towed the slaggy edge of the hole some thing had chewed through the security car's wall and floor. The black boy, Ducky, had described an attack by what he didn't know were the must's creatures and likely the must himself. Vaught sighed, thinking of the paperwork all this would entail. I didn't ask about the horses, Gato, Vaught said. Could you please stop flipping that knife? You should always ask after horses. They are nice, Gato replied. He flipped the knife up over his head and caught it with his other hand, slipping it away beneath his poncho. Large, proud, very warm, nice to sleep on. You think you know them, understand them, own them, and then one day, bam, you have a tidy little moon in the side of your head, and you cannot speak right anymore. He traced a crescent over his temple, yawned, and rolled over. I love the horses. I made sure they're okay. And that was how I spent my night. He flapped the hand at Vaught to dismiss him. Ducky helped me. He's very good with horses. 
Vought didn't care about the goddamn horses. His only concern was the damage and what had caused it. In addition to the massive, gaping hole and the series of other smaller holes, there were odd marks throughout the rear cars. Little bits of metal sheared clean off like wax cupped away by a hot coin. Ducky had speculated it was probably bite marks, but he couldn't say for sure. When Vaught had asked him how he'd known they were bite marks, Ducky had fixed him with a square, irritated look and from then on ignored Vaught. You didn't see those yellow mouth things? Elam asked. Vaught took a breath and then busied himself with his clipboard. I heard shouting and shooting all night, Vaught said. I kept to myself. Not a lie in the least. He hadn't dared stick his head out of the front cars after the moon had risen, though he wouldn't have been able to in any case. He'd been indisposed in the dining car, the engine, the offices. Vaught shivered and tapped his pen on the page. Belial's train yard hadn't had the fuel they needed to make the end of their trip. Or, really, any fuel at all. And now the back end was dragging from extreme axle damage. He could feel the bearings grinding like broken bones. How brave of you, Elam said. The young man spoke without looking up from his rifle. It lay disassembled on blackened, oily rags. Vaught lost his temper and struck him in the side of the knee with his clipboard. Elam shouted and stood, clenching his fists. The entire back car seemed to unfold then, Gato slipping up over top Vaught and pushing Elam back into his seat. The old priest slid a hand into his jacket and Gato rolled his shoulders in that direction, flipping a knife out and letting it slide over his thumb in the direction of the priest's throat. He caught it at the last second between the tips of his fingers, freezing the priest in place. No, no, Gato said using a tapping of his fingers to pull the knife slowly back into his sleeve. Not all the way, though. The priest held Gato's gaze for a long second before taking his hand out of his coat and setting it on the table. The priest splayed his fingers and rotated his palms upward. Gato tipped his head to the man and turned to Elam. The young man was furious, but seemed more upset about the disassembled rifle than being tapped by Vaught. I think... Gato said, moving the point of his knife from the priest to the inside of his poncho. You are new to violence, to doing it, yes? Elam said nothing. Gato smiled. I think you are caught between saying to yourself, Look, I am so safe now. I can end a man's life if he crosses me. And also you say to yourself, It is no thing to be killed. I could die like they did. Perhaps I will, at any second. If people do not see me as a killer. Gato leaned very close. It is hard to become what you are afraid of. And then find comfort in it. But it is okay. When you finally leave these trains behind, you can become a man of numbers again. It is not gone forever. Elam remained silent, but the heat left his eyes. He took a breath and looked to the endless wastes outside the windows. Gato gave the young man a soft smile and folded himself back into his corner. Ducky sat where he'd been all along, 
clutching his half-melted rifle to his chest and watching this spectacle with wide eyes. Hey, little man, he said in a low voice. The other men in the car had purposefully turned their attentions away from each other. All save him and Vaught. Vaught rankled at the address but looked at Ducky all the same. Maybe you should get back to your note-taking some other time. Vaught looked into the middle distance. We're running low on fuel, and we'll be stopping at the next possible place to stock up, he said to nobody in particular. I'll obviously need you all out there to provide security. We need to keep what's left of this car together for the next few hundred miles, and then it won't matter if you all just set the whole fucking train afire. He sighed and spoke in a low voice to himself. Though I'd prefer it if you didn't. He tapped his clipboard a few times. The noise was a soft interruption in the sounds of wind and the whine of the damaged axles. Launches in an hour. When nobody said anything else, he left. What would you have us do about it? Don asked, having to shout to join the conversation Wickless had started. Start a fucking mutiny? Leave? We take the horses. You know, what's ever in the safe up at the front? Wickless said. That's more than reasonable, Coakley said, his words in lockstep. Miskell wasn't a genius by any account, but it didn't take a smart man to know Wickless had dreamed up some cause with Coakley on the sly. Coakley had a new convert's way about him trying to convince everybody else of what he himself had bought into as though his own certainties depended on it. Now that he was a believer, all the world had to share his gospel. It was exhausting. Miskel rubbed his cut-up shoulder and groaned, hating everything. Don gave him a look, but continued on. What's safe? Don asked. The safe, the safe at the front of the train, Wickless said. How do you know there's any sort of safe? Don continued. He clearly wasn't convinced, but the mutinous talk was enough to get him to glance cautiously in the direction of the security car. Little Mr. Vaught had only just passed back through, and now there were no flatbed pallets of wood separating the doors. There's always a safe in the front of the train, Coakley said. The self-assuredness of how he spoke worried Miskell more than anything. Like anybody else on this detail, he spent his time between straight jobs as a petty criminal, but nothing unnerved him more than a confident virgin. He had no illusions he'd consider joining a caper Colt fucking wickless put together, but that didn't mean any shit Colt stirred up wouldn't slush back down on him. Ancient's never been to one of them five-cent shows in town? Coakley continued. Miskel groaned. This conversation was working him down to his last nerve. The Russian had stitched his shoulder up fine, but all they had for painkiller was alcohol, and he was light on that as it was, and what he drank had worn off. They always got a safe up in the front of the car. How do you think Lowe's holding the money after every stop? Miskel almost screamed. Ain't any goddamn money on this train? He hissed. They are already paid up, you damn idiots! What do you fucking know? Coakley shouted back, pointing a fat finger at Miskel's face. 
Don stepped between them and got pushed for his efforts. Fuck you! He said, bouncing off the bunks and swinging for Coakley's face. He hit true, but the big man just ate the punch and grabbed Don by his shirt, twisting the fabric closed as if to choke him. Wickless stood behind them, working spit around in his mouth and deciding what to do. He hadn't quite come up with anything before Garvey slid down out of his bunk and wrapped his arm around Coakley's throat. He dropped Don almost immediately, slapped Garvey's arm twice, and then passed out with a great, blubbering sigh. Damn. Garvey said in a low voice. His arm seemed odd to Miskel, more fatly muscled than he remembered. It's smooth, almost jointless. It was something he noticed only for a second while the man was lowering Coakley onto the floor. A moment that passed so quickly he wasn't really sure he'd seen anything at all. Garvey gave the car, Wickless especially, a grave look and then slithered back up into his bunk, turning to the wall to sleep. They all said nothing as Coakley lay on the floor, eyes fluttering and then slowly refocusing as he came to. He realized he was on the ground and attempted to jump to his feet, clearly still dizzy and nearly tripping into Cutting's rack. The smaller man yelped and scooted out of the way. I oughta fucking... Coakley muttered, trying to stand. Hey now, hey now, Wickless said, roping him up before he could get himself hurt. Garvey watched Coakley stumble around with a bloodless, dispassionate interest. Miskel had never actually seen Garvey hurt anybody. But as long as they'd worked together, it had been understood not to cross him. You came across plenty of men like him working these routes. Men who didn't interact with others or play politics. They just kept to themselves and would slit your throat in your sleep if they felt they needed to. Cutting was sort of the same. But he didn't radiate danger the way Garvey did. And if Coakley didn't have the sense to see even that, well, he and Wickless were on a low countdown until somebody mean really sat down and showed them the way of the world. Don felt the violence in the air, same as Miskel, and took a seat at the far edge of Miskel's rack. They shared a look and stayed quiet. Get him out of here, Cutting said in a low, ugly voice. Wickless shot the man a look, but Cutting just glared. Wickless sniffed, opened the door behind him, and dragged Coakley cursing and spitting into the horse car. Cutting slammed the door behind them and went back to sleep without another word. Garvey was already back in his rack like nothing had happened. Don gave the shadows Garvey had buried himself in a worried look and then climbed into the bunk above Miskel. The car drifted into a dreamy silence. Then... The screaming began. Uh, hey there, folks. If you're like me, then you love a scary story. But why settle for bargain bin big box store blandness when you can get piping hot homemade horror delivered directly to your home? Support the West Side Fairy Tales today on Patreon, and you can get episodes like this one ad free, as well as access to merch, ebooks, and other amazing deals. But most importantly, you'll help bring weird, original content like Sin Carriers to life. If you want more bizarre, creepy, and horrifying indie fiction, then go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today.
Tolliver sat naked in his childhood church, the one his father had insisted they attend every Saturday afternoon until he and Gulliver had gone to boarding school. His father would sit closest to the aisle, followed by his mother, Gulliver, and then Tolliver. His grandfather would sit in the next pew up, a silent tower of dark cloth around which flowed the word of God. None of his family had any religious inclinations. It was simply done, like most family activities, to keep up appearances. Sweating in that awful wooden shack every Saturday proved a level of piety to the locals that allowed his father and grandfather to ply this person or that for the leverage of the day. Political will, investments, threats, all carried through in the quick seconds before and after those attending took their seats. That church had served its purpose up until it had burned to the ground one Sunday. Knocked over candles or some such had caught the entire place on fire, killing a handful of older people and the eldest of the three priests, with whom Comstock Loeb, Tolliver's father, had some underlying grudge. The church had never been rebuilt. But Tolliver sat inside it now, naked as the day he was born and a good fifty years past fresh. His belly sat low in his lap, resting between his legs on the pew. A softness had settled over him, feeling like the watery memory of the first concussion he'd ever been dealt by his brother. Nothing had happened between them save Gulliver deciding to whack Tolliver over the back of the head with a bit of wood. He'd spent the next few weeks floating in a stupor, tangled between life and death in a web made of his own bedsheets. Voices had come to him in the dark, speaking through throats filled with water. Distant and muted, drowned, both the living and the dead, who came in alternating rhythm to stand over his bed. Sometimes his brother was there, staring at him in silence and cleaning his nails with a penknife. Other times it was his dead grandmother, no less severe, staring through roomy eyes with her flesh falling off her face. The locket she'd been buried in hung open, both pictures spoiled by some discharge soaking the chest of her heavy dress. Voices came to him now, no less soft but far more audible. They screamed and called for help, for mercy. Around him the church lay empty save for the pews and an overturned lectern. Not fire, but the memory of it rested atop and between every board. Not quite frozen in oily black pastel, these flames squirmed up and over each other. A voice called. Teddy. Come on. Tolliver stood and walked, sticking in place when his skeleton met the ends of his flesh. The softest parts of him remained mostly immobile on the pew behind him, only finally slagging up and into place after some effort. The motion carried him across the church into the other pews, and then back again into the center of the floor. Bits of rotten carpet stuck to his feet and then pulled away from the stone beneath, disappearing after a few steps. Redness lay outside, heavy and dark and endless. Jagged, lifeless stone and pits and pillars spread to a horizon line broken only by the forms of ruined holy buildings. There were other things as well, 
specks of beasts and shapes that might be men milling in and out of the shadows. Overhead, lightning crept a slow, jagged path through the sky and froze in place to glow like a crack in the ceiling beneath a well-lit room. Tolliver moaned and stumbled forward, the fresh blue light of this split pouring over him. His feet worked faster and faster as he tried to escape the light. His belly was a weight not in front of him now, but behind him. It had fallen loose of his pelvis and now dragged between his thighs from a great, hairy umbilicus. Nothing was left in its wake but a thin trail of slime. Ahead lay the ship, the calls and screams. He could see men dangling from its arms, from the sides of its body and the broken timbers jutting out its sides. It had grown was growing even as he looked at it. Blackness and red light pulsed inside the great hole closest to Tolliver. Smells boiled from it, skin and sweat and something else. Something hot and metallic and intoxicating. He ran faster, hands out now, fingers clawing at the space in front of him. Threads of light danced over his arms and legs. Thin as hair, they cut him, caught him, dragged him back. Inside the darkness he saw eyes, narrow and shining. Forms moved, the rustling of feathers. Oliver. Close, so close, closer. It was his. He could have her. He could have everything. Tolliver! Tolliver sucked in a breath and rolled out of his bed, splashing when he hit the carpet beneath him. Thin light crept through the lowered window blinds enough to show him he was in his quarters and they were filled with water. He stood, and the gentlest shift in the train's course folded his legs beneath him. He slumped into the wall, feeling himself spread over it and then snap back together. He grabbed his belly, feeling sick, and slumped into his bed. Tolliver, answer me, you fuck! He heard a kick at the door. Grubby! Another kick. Disgusting pig of a man! It was Vaught, no doubt upset at whatever the mess was on Tolliver's floor. It wasn't his fault, whatever it was. But no doubt Vaught would blame him. People always dropped blame at Tolliver's feet. I'm coming, he said. The words were more of a belch than a sentence. He hiccuped, sucking down acid before speaking again. I'm coming! Stop your inanities, you little imp! Tolliver opened the door and almost fell onto Vaught, who jumped to the side and had to crawl to keep from being smothered. He watched with disgust as Tolliver left a trail of slime down the wall, his spine bending near in half at the pelvis. What in good Christ, Vaught whispered, looking with horror as the pool of liquid he'd come to inspect grew around Tolliver. What have you done, Tolliver? Is that any way to speak? Tolliver rolled about on the floor, taking a deep breath and then riding himself by some process he only barely understood. To your betters. The effort had almost completely crushed him. He wanted to slip back into the bed. The hallway was terribly hot and smelled alluring somehow. Feminine. Oh, boy. He thought to himself. 
One of Tolliver's eyes slid backward through his head and blinked in the direction of Moira's door. Vaught, still sitting, covered his mouth and had to flex his stomach to keep from vomiting at this display. Tolliver looked at him again, his right eye puckering into place like some self-healing wound. I'm tired, he said. Don't bother me until we've arrived. It won't be long, Vaught said, gathering himself and taking a step toward the door at the farthest end of the hall. Whatever was wrong with Tolliver was none of his business. We're almost out of fuel. But Isles, men, didn't load so much as a stick of wood on board. Tolliver sighed and rested his head against his forearm. The smell from his daughter's room was intoxicating, but something much sweeter taunted him from down the hall. If it weren't for the heat outside, all that relentless sunlight, he'd have followed it without thinking. Where are we stopping? He asked after a long time. Vaught watched the man's naked torso drip relentlessly onto the carpet. I tell ya, Vaught said. It's an old company town, maybe an hour or so from here. He winced as Tolliver pressed his face into the wall and took a deep, sucking breath. It sounded wet. Just press on, Tolliver said in a low voice. We can push past and deliver this next load on what we have. We have to stop, Tolliver, Vaught said, a cautious edge in his voice. Things shifted in the car behind him. The dining car that led to the sweet carriage and then the engine beyond, which not even Tolliver was allowed to enter. Telling you is a formality. We have enough wood up there and coal to push this engine into the Atlantic. Tolliver muttered. The door to the dining car clicked and began to slide slowly into the wall. He could see nothing in the shadows there, though he did look. Vaught didn't dare turn around. The smell of women made Tolliver's mouth water. Thirst built until even the sour smell of fearful little Vaught and the coffee-laced acridity of the Russian's cabin began to weigh on him. I don't feel well. This delivery needs to end now. Fast. If not... A single, pale hand floated out of the darkness of the dining car. Tattered and poorly stitched white cloth made up the sleeve. Vaught turned his eyes down to the floor and away. The fingers of the hand hung slack beneath the wrist, but began to perk up once the appendage had stretched a full ten feet from the door. Nothing along the extremity suggested any joints in its construction, or any connected body for that matter. It pointed at Tolliver, beginning to shake as it got closer. I'm not well, he whispered to it. The finger shook all the more, but didn't stop approaching. Tolliver relinquished his spot on the wall and stumbled back toward his room. I'm not well! The finger pursued him until he fell weeping into the puddled floor of his quarters and kicked his door shut with his foot. Then the ghastly arm receded back into the dining car, the metal door sliding home with a harsh click. Vaught let out his breath. Good God, he muttered to himself. What on earth is going on out here? Vasily said, 
popping out of his room and looking around the hall. The liquid seeping from beneath Tolliver's door now stretched the length of the hallway. Nothing, sir, Bot said, waving his hand and giving Vasily a tight smile. The Russian looked at him and then at the acrid puddle spreading toward the far door. He swept his hand over it. What is this? He asked. Vod worked spit around in his mouth, thinking up some likely excuse. Broken pipes or plumbing. A comical spill of many dozens of water pitchers. Mr. Loeb, he finally started to say, and Vasily glared at him. The Russian threw several suspicious glances at the floor and Tolliver's door. You speak of Tolliver? He hissed in a low voice. Vaught nodded, getting ready to further explain. The Russian pointed at him. No, no, I am not getting involved. Tell him I now live in the horse car. Let whatever is wrong with him take him to God! With that, Vasily slammed his door and left Vaught alone in the hallway. After a few seconds, the little man heard the dining car door click open beside him. He remained still until he heard it close and then turned to look at the tray of food sitting on the carpet. With nothing left to do but his job, Mr. Vaught sighed, picked up the lunch tray, and got to work. Colt rocked in time with the screeching, grinding axles of the horse car. His horse, a roan the keeper in Pittsburgh had called Whistle, that he didn't call by name at all, swayed in its paddock with its nose hanging out the window. Beneath the roar of the tracks and all the broken machinery beneath his feet, he could hear the beast tromping back and forth on its hay. The carving right, Coakley said. The man had walked outside, rubbing his arms as though it were the dead of winter. Ain't right at all. How's he sound like that, huh? Don't worry yourself about it, Colt said. He slapped the horse on its haunches and it barely seemed to notice. He clicked his tongue against the roof of his mouth and pitched down a few tufts of hay from the steel-offs over top the horse cart. It was Culver's turn to feed the horses, but he was gone now. Shame to let the beast starve. Garvey's no trouble to us. How's that? Coakley asked, coming up beside Colt and leaning over the horse pen to stare at Colt's face. How's... How are you so calm? What the hell's going on anyway? This trip is cursed, I tell you. Cursed flat. What'd we even do to deserve it? Coakley had been left behind with the horses and thus spared the worst of it all those things in the houses and streets in that town. Colt took a breath, thinking about the money he'd stolen. The letters. Tolerate, he said. Coakley gave him a pleading look. Despite his size, the man had apparently battened down in the horse stall while that wild Mexican, Castellano or whatever, had wandered the night cutting down the screaming, glowing beasts that had tried to chew their way to the horses. Then had come wild-eyed villagers, and they had gone the same way, chopped like onions and left in the sand. Was that? Coakley asked. Tolerate, Colt said, 
tucking away the shortened pitchfork and walking down to the saddles hanging on the walls at the end of the car. The lot of them were partially dry-rotted, and God alone knew what horses they'd been fitted to, but they'd serve when the time called. He pulled the best-looking one down and set to checking its fittings and cleaning it. You tolerate things without addressing them and they get bad, Colt said. Coakley followed him like a confused child. Tolerate a bad tooth, you get sick. Tolerate a bad shoe, you get late. Now you gotta tolerate such things as a rising life, like tests, see. But eventually, you gotta fix them. Satisfied with the saddle, he hung it back on the wall. Willful women, coloreds, cross-dressers, folks of odd religious dispositions. You gotta fix them all just the same. Oh, God damn it, Cole, Coakley said. The big man bounced his fat fist off the wall and the metal reverberated throughout the car. It was slightly musical. I ain't... I've heard that my whole life, Venetians, Nemans, and I, I don't know. What's it fixed? All that's going on. Fixed? Colt said, raising his voice and turning to lean against the horse paddock. I might have misspoke, because it ain't about fixing like you fix a, a saddle or a broken chair or the like. He grinned and shook his head. No, no, it's about fixing a problem in place, keeping it from getting worse. You don't pull a tooth to make a mouth better. You pull it to keep it from getting worse. Turning black. You like a black tooth in a man? Talking to him? Smelling it? No, of course not, Coakley said. How about a black man going around your neighborhood chatting up your neighbor? Colt asked. Coakley snorted and looked around, not even convinced of the possibility. Your sister? With that, Coakley turned and pointed a finger at Colt. Not another word in that regard, mister. Colt relaxed his face into something like concern and raised his hands, leaning closer. You pull out the black tooth. He emphasized every word with a slow nod of his head, speaking almost in a whisper by the end. Coakley took a breath and looked toward the security car. How many drives you been on? Colt asked. How many jobs like this? Not a damn one, Coakley muttered. The big man scuffed the floor with the toe of his boot and Colt realized there was a small, crescent-shaped hole there. He thought of the glowing yellow-green thing from the night before snapping its jaws shut on the old woman's head. What's different? Well, there's some wood piles. Colors, Colt said. Colors, queers, and women what think they can act like men. Coakley bit his lip and nodded. He seemed to think about something and then shook his head. It wasn't a disagreement. It was resignation. Right back to square one. Everything in its place. You let a little go, and then you got the whole goddamn circus in your backyard, Coakley. So, what do we do? The big man asked. Well, Colt started. Any plans he had involved Coakley up until the end point of convenience. There was little value in the man aside from muscle and a free vote of confidence. But once they were off the train, he wasn't as stupid as he looked. As stupid as Colt would like him to be. And plenty self-interested. If somebody offered him a better ride, 
or a safer option. There was little doubt Coakley would talk himself into betraying Colt. Hell are you doing here? Coakley asked someone, and Colt nearly spit when he turned to see who it was. It was her, that chicken hawk of a crossdresser, alone in the middle of the train. Coakley had a good two heads on her, even leaning against the horse paddock. All Colt's talking could do a lot to keep Coakley by his side until he was off this train. But one thing for certain would keep the man there until his death. Get out of my way, you old pile of chicken fat. Sue mumbled. It was clear something else had her attention. Colt licked his teeth and stepped in front of her, hand on his pistol with that same hip facing away. Where are you headed to? Colt asked. She didn't so much as answer, just stepped past him. Smooth as anything, he pulled his pistol and hit her on the back of the head as hard as he could at that angle. She might have seen it last minute, giving her enough chance to keep the blow from splitting her skull outright. But a second later, she was reeling into the nearest horse paddock. She swung a nasty little straight razor at his face and came up short. Colt could see her eyes were hazy from the first hit as he smashed her in the mouth with the butt of his gun. Sue's head rocked back and she fell into the empty paddock, slapping at the railings to keep herself upright. Colt kicked her and she cut his leg, a shallow gash over top his shin. The force drove her into the wall and she dropped the knife. Motherfucker! She said. Her words were mush. Colt jammed the pistol up under her chin until her eyes met his. Sue's bell was well rung, but she wasn't completely out of it. (laughs) Come on in. You want me to blow your fucking brains out? Colt whispered, accentuating his words with the pressure of the barrel in her neck. He dipped his eyes to her clothes and tore open her shirt. She laughed at him. (laughs) Ain't I a bit old for you? Sue asked, still chuckling. Colt grabbed the ripped shirt, twisted his hand up in it, and smacked her temple with the pistol. Her head rolled and she spit a mouthful of blood onto her own shoulder. (coughs) Fucking jacket. Colt! Coakley hissed behind him. What the hell are you doing? Fixing this little bitch. Colt said, looking into Sue's eyes. Watching them, really. That last hit had nearly knocked her cold, but now she was just staring off into space. I'm going to set her right. He glanced back at Coakley. You'll get a turn with her after. Watch the door. Don't let nobody in. Coakley licked his lips and scooted up to look down at Sue. Her eyes met his, and he snorted. Hurry up, then, he said, leaving Colt to it. He smiled and turned back to Sue and pressed the barrel up tight under her chin, moving his free hand to her belt buckle. He was surprised when she moved her hips against his fingers. Bet you wouldn't have so much trouble with that if I had something hard down there for you. Sue said, laughing. He glared and raised his pistol to smack her again. Then she was gone, up under his gun arm, her legs and hands trapping his arms in awkward positions. They slumped against the ground and he felt her writhing against him, wriggling for something. Get the fuck off me, he said. Get off and I won't shoot. He fully intended to if she didn't let him go soon. 
She was goddamn strong, but he was still a man. He'd break out and... He heard something rasp just behind his back. Boot knife, he thought. And then he couldn't breathe. The pain was cold, almost non-existent in a way. Coolness spreading inside him heralded a wholesale change in his form. The body needed not protest. Nothing could be done. He tried to swallow and couldn't. That's your lung, baby. Sue hissed in his ear. He pulled the trigger on his pistol, firing three wild shots that hit metal and horse flesh but didn't come close to the woman wrapped around him. He felt a second, silvery stab and then a true, unholy fire as she jammed her knife into the hollow between his shoulder bone and his chest. Wickless vomited and dropped his gun, kicking himself back into the aisle. The horses screamed. He screamed. Cool! What the hell? Coakley screamed. The girl rolled to her knees, took Colt's gun, and leaned out the stall to shoot Coakley in the belly. His mouth worked open and shut like a fish, tears welling in his eyes. He fell against the paddock and held the hole in his stomach. Wickless never so much as looked back as he tried to limp away with her knife still wriggling in his shoulder. Every step was agony. Sue stood and gathered her shaving razor off the ground. She spun it in her hand and flipped it closed, sticking it in her belt for a moment as she fixed her shirt. Commotion had broken out the next car over, men falling over each other in a rush to get to the sound of gunfire. Some of them were hollering that they didn't have guns and didn't intend on meeting anybody who did. Ruin my shirt, boy! Sue shouted, aiming at Colt's knee. He wasn't hard to hit, slow as he was moving. Loose bits of bone and the silvery flash of a bullet all blew out his left knee at once. He screamed best as he could with a sucking lung and hit the ground. Sue turned to Coakley and grinned. Her teeth shone with blood. You like to watch? He shook his head. Well, you're gonna. Wickless was sobbing when she pulled her knife free of his shoulder and kicked him over on his back. He made some promises about behaving himself and offered her money he said he had hidden. Gold and the like. Sue didn't care for all that. She opened her straight razor and cleaned his eyes out with it, not so much as flinching as she blinded him. Behind her own eyes, she felt hot, red lightning boiling her skull. Sue! Sue! Somebody was screaming her name. Not her problem. All she could think of was a great red moon screaming in a black sky. Fire danced across its face. She whipped Wickless with the razor back and forth, turning his face into ribbons. Somebody touched her and she spun, cut him across his hand, and stood with her pistol in front of her. Ducky yelped and fell back into the crowd of men. Hand cut, but not as badly as she'd intended. Oddly, he was holding the back of his hand like that's where she'd hurt him. Sue, the priest said. His name was Mildo, she remembered. The men around him were horrified, but his face was passive, imploring. She hated that pleading, bullshit look most of all. Help me. Help me. Help me. Wickless gasped. Bone shone through the ruined flesh around his empty eye sockets. A few strikes had made it as low as his chin, but his mouth was mostly unharmed. Hush you, Sue said. 
One of the drivers rushed forward right then, clearly thinking he had the drop on him. She fired a bullet into his thigh and he howled and fell to the ground, rolling over on his side to clutch the fresh hold she put in him. She cocked the empty gun and pointed it at Mildover's face. He swallowed and raised his hands to shoulder height, stepping back. The others followed suit, save for a man with a bandaged shoulder who knelt beside the one she'd shot. He yelled the fellow's name and helped put pressure on the wound. Sue, a voice asked beside her. The Russian, Vasily, stood on the next car over, beside the last woodpile. Moira watched from behind him, body flattened against the blackness covering the wood. Vasily took a breath and pointed to Wickless. I am not sure what happened here, but I think this is enough. Moira said nothing. Her eyes glistened, wide and almost purple in the growing shadow of the mountain they were approaching. It was still a ways off, but it loomed all the same. It was odd, Sue thought, how things that size could creep up on you. Sue, put the gun down, please, Mildover said. It's over. She looked at him like he was crazy, and then laughed, kneeling beside Wickless. All right. He never stopped moaning. Through all this, he kept on with his promises and begging. Sue knelt beside him and wiped her blade on his ass, flipping it closed and tucking it away. Then she pulled the rest of his bullets off his belt one by one, everybody silent around her save the wounded. With a sudden, jerking motion, Sue stood and dragged Wickless into the air by his belt. She twisted her hips to the side, and for a whole second, his body left the floor. He searched the air blindly with his remaining arm and only realized in the last second he couldn't touch ground because there was none. He caught the railing anyway, slipped on his own blood, and vanished. There was a crunch and a spray of blood as some part of him caught beneath the wheels, and then a scream, and then silence. Jesus Christ, Sue. Mildover said. His eyes were wide. Indeed. She replied, flipping open Wickless's gun and dumping out the empty cartridges. Every eye seemed to feel a different way about the spent brass. She loaded the pistol and slid it into her belt. Please. Vasily shouted, walking quickly onto the deck of the horse car. The horses had calmed, and now their former unease seemed to have infected the remaining men. He stopped to give a curt nod to Sue. Madam, if you persist in harming these men further, I will have to intervene. He didn't wait for her to say anything, simply knelt beside the man she'd shot and went straight to work on his leg. What have you done? Mildover asked. What? What what could he have done to deserve that? Sue smiled with her bloody teeth and cocked her hips to the side, crossing her arms. She saw Mildover's eyes drop to the torn fabric of her shirt as she ran her finger chin to belly button, right down the middle of her chest. (laughs) You want to know what he did to deserve that? She asked. Her grin faded and she took a step toward the old priest. In the shadow of the approaching mountain, the cross burned into his cheek looked black. He crossed me. That's it. 
Same as a boy with a cut hand and a fella over there with a lead in his leg. It's all you gotta do if you wanna bleed some. If you wanna scream and think about what you might say to God when you meet him. Talk to me sideways. Get in my way when I'm cutting somebody. She was an inch from his face. He took a step back and swallowed. The woman's eyes glowed with a red-hot flatness the scar on his cheek seemed to remember. I'm the fucking monster here. She said, I always have been. You just didn't realize. Do you know why? The crowd had separated around her. Moira had gone to Ducky and helped bind his hand, and they were the only ones not staring at her. Mildover looked down, holding his breath. He let her push his back up against the wall, and she hadn't so much as touched him. Because I didn't want you to, Sue said. She lowered her eyes and turned her head to the other men. But now y'all know. Says you best not forget. Sue walked through the horse car, picking up her bloodied hat where it lay in the straw. She set it on her head and stopped beside Coakley. More blood pooled around him than he could stand to lose. His face was pale. Their eyes met. Did you watch? She whispered. He looked away, closing his eyes and listening to the soft rustle of the horses adjusting their feet. All right, all right, I'll read it, goddammit. Are you a fan of the Westside Fairy Tales podcast and my, my, my story, Sin Carriers? Then take a second right now, pause this episode, and take a second to like it, comment on it, or share it on your favorite social media sites. This year, we're trying to grow the Westside Fairy Tales like never before, and we need your help to do it. So if you have just a second, use Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the hell, and share the Westside Fairy Tales with the world. And... If you want, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and what have you. Just search Westside Fairy Tales or use the link in the episode show notes. All right, that's it. I get you. Garvey dreamed of flesh and red eggs bursting wide, spilling themselves over flat, hot sand. He opened his mouth at the base of a great tree and drank, opening his throat to all creation. When the flesh and egg flesh was not sufficient, he bit into the tree itself and suckled sap from its wounded flesh. He gorged himself until he was alone, and then devoured his own tail. Scraping steel pulled him from hot, wet dreams and he stiffened on his mattress. He lay curled in a way the others would find unnatural if they saw him, so it was good he'd taken a top bunk before his metamorphosis. As a boy, he'd always enjoyed being stretched and slack, being loose and limply twisted about himself. Hardness had found his joints as he aged, but now that was gone, and so too were the simpler constraints of humanity. He could place his own foot in his throat if he so desired. Moreover, his senses were more tender, more flexile. Woman's flesh, not so tender as his intended prize, but soft and sweet all the same, entered the sleeping car. 
It was the violent one, Sue. The bird with the nasty little talons that had so tormented that fool Wickless. Nothing about her, save her sex, was particularly enticing to him. She would fight him, wound him even, if he tried her. Garvey was a cautious killer, and had abandoned his arrogance and pride after many youthful mistakes. The woman took two unsteady steps inside the car, vomited, and collapsed onto her knees. He rolled his body to get a better view. Smells of blood, fear, and pain washed over him. Drool bled from his mouth, soaking the mattress. Sue tried to stand, failed, and collapsed onto her face. When she didn't move, Garvey began to slip off his mattress in her direction. His body remained where it was, but his neck unfurled like an anchor chain. He could keep her in his little nest, up there in the bunk, wrapped up in himself and hidden from the others. So close. He could hold her and taste her bit by bit, soak in her fear as he squeezed her unconscious again and again. Never before had this been a possibility, but now? Yes. He would drag her up to lay with him and have what he wanted from her when he wanted it. An appetizer. Practice. For when he finally had Moira to himself. Something flat grazed Garvey's cheek and he froze. The cabin below him was a pit of shadows cut here and there by the slats of light leaking through where the others had covered the windows. Danger. He tried to retract his neck and something caught against his throat. Sharp and thin, it dared him to move. The edge of a knife. It stung like hot peppers. He could feel the nick it had given him burning in his blood. I wouldn't move. A voice said, It was the Castellano, the tall man who called himself Gatto. Garvey felt the man's face press into his and then they were cheek to cheek, both looking at the unconscious woman on the floor. Little tree snake are you? I am like a jaguar, yes? But I am not hungry. I could always eat. But right now, I am not hungry. Garvey swallowed and stayed stock still. A fan of cards bloomed in front of his face, showing unfamiliar moons of different colors. As he watched, Gato's fingers spun the cards expertly, flipping them over each other and front to back. A card showing a human man in a field spun to reveal a small, sad moon. Then all the cards showed the empty field of stars that served as their back, all save one great, red moon with a mouth frozen open in a scream. What do you see when you look at her? Gato asked, voice not concealing his wonder. His thumb flipped over the moon to show some inhuman thing marked Diosito. Then it shifted again and Garvey saw a great, empty hole. Beginnings and ends. All too interesting, eh? Gato tapped him with his knife and moved to stand over the girl. As a younger man... Garvey would have attacked the second the man's back was turned. But age and caution kept him steady. Pride was a worthless coin that bought only misery. In this, he was impoverished. If you think I show you my back out of disrespect, I do, Gatto said, not looking back at Garvey. He knelt and picked up the woman, 
Her body seemed much smaller in his arms. If you would like to find out why, I can always explain. You need only take your invitation. Garvey scoffed and rolled back into his bed, content to dream of flesh and rivers of blood. He'd never had a taste for cats, and in any case, the little bird was only an opportunity, not a goal. The man Garvey licked his lips and drifted off to sleep. Next episode, the sunken city arc opens with Tolliver going through some unexpected midlife changes. As the heavily damaged train limps to the next station, he corners Mr. Vaughn with a speech about his childhood. Our surviving travelers disembark at the next town, a ghostly remnant of civilization sitting on poles over top of fetid, oil-laced swamp. Vicky finds a familiar secret in the post-exchange. Miskel nurses Dawn through a fever brought on by the gunshot wound from Sue, rifles through Wigglesses' effects, and makes a tough decision. With only one wood pile left amongst the crew, will they manage the rest of this trip in safety, or will one of their numbers succumb to the call? Now that Garvey has embraced his inner self, what will he do with his newfound power? And just what changes has Tolliver gone through? may find the answers to these questions and more on episode 13 of Sin Carriers. Swap! And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. The sun had set by the time the rider came upon the tattered man. He lay twisted in half, gasping blindly at the east, The rider followed his gaze, looked back the way he'd come, and then let his great lance drop down into his hand. He used this to stab the dying man through his chest and pull him upright, never once slowing his horse to do so. The man screamed, casting his eyeless head left and right. There was little else he could do. (laughs) How does a man come to be in such a state? The rider asked, enjoying a chuckle. The must formed in stride with him, looking at the disabused meat dangling from the rider's lance, and shook his head, falling back into dust. The rider raised the spar of bone higher, and the man moaned as he slid down close. Then the rider pulled a pale leather flask from inside his jacket and poured its contents into the man's ruined throat. He gagged and went limp for a long moment before jerking back to life with a scream. He continued screaming as his wounds oozed shut and his lungs sealed and inflated. Then Wickless belched a stream of clotted blood down his belly and opened black crab's eyes to look around with. Help me, he whispered. I'm in hell. Help me. I have, the rider said. And you not, for now at least. Now, answer me. <laughs> she cut me, Wickless said. Threw me off the train. My legs went under. He screamed as those same legs popped and snapped themselves back in place. The rider allowed him to finish, his own dark eyes surveying the tracks ahead. 
A fresh mask hung beneath his hat. You were on that train then, huh? The rider asked. Wickless howled as his body rediscovered its capacity to feel the lance jutting from beneath his clavicle. Fingers that had barely regained feeling struggled to hold on to that twisted length of bone, tried in vain to pull his body off it. I'm sure you feel some way about how your trip ended, the rider said. He tilted down his javelin until Wickless's feet were pounding away on the ground to keep from dragging. Then the javelin was gone, and Wickless found himself jogging along in ruined clothing, trying to keep up with the rider. Why don't you tell me what you know about that train and who's left on it? This has gone on long enough. I may as well bring along a gun dog. The rider sighed. Let's go. Despite the agony of jogging on his half-mended legs, Wickless obeyed. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, and produced by Tyler Bell. Sound design, original music, and foley by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein, copyright, WSF Productions, 2023. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.